Let's, uh, let's open our time in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet here um, and think about uh, what you have been doing in the world and also um, what you have done in our church and um, how we're different to others. And we pray that you would help us to approach this with a right heart and a right attitude. Help us not to... Um, uh, yeah, help us to give glory to you in these things and um, we do pray that you would help us to benefit from our time in these things in Jesus name, Amen As I say, is there anybody without a sheet? Okay uh, You would know that uh, at the AGM earlier this year uh, the session was requested to explain to the congregation uh, the history of the church and also help the church understand uh, what its distinctives are in the present day. Uh, last month we looked at the historical aspects and so uh, from now on in we're going to be looking at uh, the present day situation. I imagine we'll probably do say five or maybe six sessions on the present day. Um, I think it's really important that we do consider what is distinctive about the Presbyterian Reformed Church in the present day. It is important because if we are not distinctive today, if there is nothing different about us, um, then we really shouldn't be a different church. Uh, We should seek out the denomination or denominations that we are the same as and we should join with them. And it is important too because while it is helpful uh, to understand something of our place in history, yet it is not nearly as important as understanding our place in the present day. Um, Our history helps inform us as to where we came from, but we need to understand more than where we came from. We need to understand where we are today. And the situation today is different to what it was 43 years ago when the PRC formed. It's different for two reasons. Firstly, uh, we have changed. Um, I trust that we have changed for the better. Uh, Perhaps in areas we have changed for the worse and where that is the case, uh, we're responsible to repent of that. But I hope that we have changed for the better. If we have not changed over the last 40 years, um, then we have been disobedient because, I mean, just as any individual is a growing individual in Christ, so every church should be a growing church in Christ, we should be a changing church. And so I hope that we have changed positively over the last 40 years. We have changed. Secondly, other churches have changed too, uh, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And so our distinctives today are not all the same as what they were 43 years ago. Um, Some things are the same, uh, but not everything is the same. There are areas of similarity now with other churches that never existed 43 years ago. And there are areas of difference now with other churches that never existed 43 years ago. I will try to highlight some of these as I go through these sessions. And so this is a really important subject. We have to understand the situation today. 
Can I also, by, qualifi- uh, by way of introduction, make, make a brief qualification? And that qualification is that in addressing this subject of what is different about us as a church, um, I am not wanting to deny the many good attributes of other churches and many things that I have learned from other churches. Other churches and other groups have taught me a lot about the big picture of the Bible. Um, I've learnt a lot from other groups about training other Christians, about evangelism, about current issues and so on. And I've used a lot of resources from other groups too, um, although I should say that I, I hope when I use other resources um, it's not assume that I simply pick up a resource and run with it. I never simply pick up a resource and run with it. I always um, change things, seek to change things as much as I am able if I differ from the resource. But I have learned a great deal from other churches and other groups. However, in addressing this series, I will need to highlight real-life areas of examples of where we differ from other churches. Um, if I didn't give examples, it would, well, it would seem that I didn't have any evidence for what I have to say, and all of this would seem a little bit theoretical. Um, and I don't want you to, to believe that this is theoretical. I don't believe that it is theoretical. I believe that we are distinctive today, and I believe that we are distinct in a number of very important areas. I'm going to begin with one of those areas in a moment, but before I do, I do need to get you up to speed on a couple of changes in the church situation that have occurred over the last 40 years or so. Um, I I could mention more than this, but I'm just going to highlight a couple of changes for the moment. In 1977, a large number of Methodist, Congregational and Presbyterian churches joined together to form the Uniting Church. Uh, That was actually a good thing for the Presbyterian Church. It wasn't a good thing for the Uniting Church. The Uniting Church has not, on the whole, been a good thing. Uh, But it was a good thing for the Presbyterian Church because the ones that left were mostly the Liberals. By Liberals, I mean people who do not really believe the Bible. That left a larger percentage of evangelicals within the Presbyterian Church of Australia. Um, uh, By evangelicals, I mean people who believe the evangel, that word evangelical, evangel means gospel. By evangelical, I mean people who believe the gospel, people who believe the Bible. And so there has been a good amount of improvement within the Presbyterian Church, especially within some regions, uh, within some regions more than within other regions. Now, there are still many unbelievers within the Presbyterian Church. We will talk about that. But for the moment, it is important to recognise, it is important that we recognise that there has been significant improvement within the church. Um, Back in 1967, the situation within the Presbyterian Church was just black. Um, Steve was telling us about this last week, uh, last month, that of the 25 ministers within uh, the Sydney South Presbytery, um, he said he would have been hard-pressed to find four that were um, not liberal. In in other words, probably four that were even converted. Um, Now, it is nothing like that today. Uh, The situation was black 
back in 1967. It is much more of a shade of grey today. And we do need to acknowledge that. Uh, we must, uh, I think we owe the Presbyterian Church that courtesy. Um, it is really frustrating in life, isn't it, when people do not let you move on. Uh, sometimes when people have lived in the same area all of their life, it grates on them when, as adults, others hark on about their childhood flaws and they say, yeah, but I'm not like that anymore. Um, why do you still keep on going on about that? Tell me, treat me according to what I'm like today. And that is a fair request, isn't it? Um, it is right for us to treat the Presbyterian Church according to what it is like today, not according to what it is like yesterday. The Presbyterian Church has changed somewhat. And the broader church situation has changed somewhat too. In fact, you might have noticed that all of a sudden, Calvinism is actually popular. In fact, today, it is more prominent than Arminianism. There has been an enormous growth in the popularity of Calvinism, especially within the last 10 years. In September 2006, Christianity Today published an article called Young, Restless and Reformed. Its opening line is, I, I, this was reprinted um, in, I think, December in the Australian Presbyterian. Uh, on your sheet there, I have a link to this. You can just get this, pull it straight off the web and have a read of it. It's a very interesting um, and encouraging read. And its opening line is, Calvinism is making a comeback and shaking up the church. Um, as I say, have a read of it. Um, it is fascinating to read through some of the ways. Uh, in, it talks about ways in which in America whole denominations, um, the Southern Baptist Church, for example, um, has turned around from being what was an Arminian church and um, heading back to their um, roots, or is turning around anyway. Um, uh, in, in Time magazine on March 12, 2009, this is only a year ago, published a series of articles called 10 Ideas Changing the World Right Now. And the third of the 10 ideas uh, was this. It was titled The New Calvinism. Again, I've given you the link there on the uh, sheet um, at, at, at the bottom. Have a, have a look at it in your own time. And the article begins by talking about the shift in Christian songwriting recently, how um, often Christian songwriting is now actually Calvinistic, or the lyrics are. And then the article continues and it says, Calvinism is back and not just musically. John Calvin's 16th century reply to medieval Catholicism's buy your way out of purgatory excesses is evangelicalism's latest success story, complete with an utterly sovereign and micromanaging deity, sinful and puny humanity, and the combination's logical consequence, predestination. It goes on and it makes the point that the prominent leaders within Christianity today are, are Calvinistic. Our Cal Calvinism has made a comeback. And uh, that is the case not only in America, that is the case here in Australia today. I could tell you of 
our churches, within Baptist circles, within Presbyterian circles, within Church of Christ circles and other independent circles, all of which used to be of a more Arminian flavour that are becoming, I say becoming because this is a process, but are becoming more Calvinistic. Now, I say more Calvinistic because, um, uh, or, or somewhat Calvinistic because much of the time some Calvinistic doctrines and practices are being left off. Um, and I will be talking about that. I do have concerns about that and I will be talking about that in future sessions. But for the moment, all I'm trying to establish at this point is that the situation has changed. And so let's move on then and consider what is different today about us. I wonder if um, someone asked you what is different about the PRC, how you would answer that. Um, I've been asked that question um, many, many times. Uh, in fact, you get asked it a little bit uh, more often being a, uh, uh, a minister and you go to some of these things with different ministers from other churches and you, you get asked this question. Um, I think in the past people would have answered, we have good teaching. And I think in the past when only four out of 25 ministers in the Sydney South Presbytery were preaching the Bible, that was a very good answer. But I don't believe that that is always a good place to start today. It's not that I think that we have bad teaching today uh, and it's not that I don't have concerns with some of the teaching even within more Calvinistic circles. But it is that the teaching has improved in so many quarters today that to define that as the great difference between us and other churches can actually be quite unhelpful. I know of so many covenant children who have been brought up thinking our teaching is what makes us different, our teaching is what makes us different, our teaching is what makes us different. And then they head along to another church and they hear this really, really good sermon and they think, oh, the teaching has obviously changed in other churches. We must not be different anymore. Today, I would not start with teaching. I would start with example. I think the thing that is most different about our church is that our church recognises the importance of example. Our church is careful to make sure that its membership are only those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and who are living like a Christian. I can walk into any church in the PRC and I have a good confidence that every member of that church is a Christian. And I think that that is really, really important because it sets a powerful example to others as to what a Christian is. We have members of churches that aren't living or believing what it is to be a Christian. That sends this incredibly confusing message. And I think that there is an enormous amount of confusion, even today within evangelicalism, about what a Christian is. I have a good degree of confidence that every member of our entire denomination is a Christian. Now imagine how many people in other churches do you think could actually say that? 
I have a good degree of confidence that every member in my denomination is a a Christian. How many people could actually say that? Um, There are very few people that could actually say that of the denomination that they belong to. It is an area of massive difference. And that is because the vast majority of churches today, even the more Calvinistic ones, still are failing dramatically in the area of church discipline. It is as if um, they do not believe that God has called on the church to exercise loving accountability. But God has called on us to exercise loving accountability. Um, I will give you some references in a moment. Um, uh, I do just want to say, I'll give a fair few references this session, but I do just want to say that um, as I move through this series, I'm not going to be able to deal with all of the scriptures for everything that I talk about. Um, I've preached on some of these topics on, on different occasions. I'll give you sermon links where I have done that um, so that you can refer back to them. Um, but we, we simply would be here for a very long time if I preached a sermon on each one of these um, topics. Although I'll, my notes on this topic is a little bit fuller because I think this is one of the greater areas of our difference. Um, and so in our consideration of what makes us different, uh, let's turn firstly to church discipline, and that's what I will spend the rest of this time on in this session. The teaching of the Bible is that the church is to do its best to ensure that it consists of believers and only believers. Now, obviously, we cannot look into a person's heart. Um, uh, that's why I said earlier, you know, I have a good degree of confidence that everyone within our church is a Christian. But I mean, we can't look into a person's heart. But where it is clear that a person does not believe the gospel or that their life is inconsistent with the gospel, they are not to be kept in the church. There are a number of commands to discipline in scripture. Uh, I'll give you some. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that where a brother sins, we need to go to them first about the matter privately. Then if that does not work, we need to take the matter to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. The church there is given a mandate to enact discipline on those who are named a brother but who refuse to repent. In 1 Corinthians 5, we have a very clear example of a church discipline case, the person there is in sexual immorality and Paul clearly says there that they are to be put out of the church. Um, And then in 2 Corinthians 2 we have a clear example of a case where church discipline is lifted because the sinner has repented. There are many other references to church discipline in scripture. Often the church is commanded to withdraw from certain ones or not to keep company with them because they have turned away from the faith. Broadly, there are two reasons for discipline. Uh, Firstly, we are to discipline, as I have said, when a person behaves like a non-Christian. 1 Corinthians 5.11, I was referring to these verses, uh, well, I didn't quote them, but now I'll quote them. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a revival or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges? Therefore, put away from yourselves 
the evil person. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through to 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. That's why I put this under the behaviour banner. Um, He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, revelling evil suspicions, useless wranglings of evil men, uh, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Likewise, we are to discipline when a person believes like a, gospel, like a non-Christian, not only when they behave like a non-Christian, but when they believe like a non-Christian. In other words, when they deny the truths of the gospel. 2 John 9 through to 11, whoever transgresses and does not abide the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house or greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Um, They weren't even allowed uh, even to allow this apostate into their house. Um, Now, if you can't allow an apostate into your house, surely you can't allow them into membership of the church. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18 Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and so on. Uh, And by smooth and flattering words, uh, smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Timothy 2, 16 through to 18, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase more to ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. God commands discipline. Now, there are two purposes of discipline and and both of them are good. Um, uh, Discipline is a gracious thing. Firstly, discipline is intended to bring the party, but to bring the person under discipline to repentance. It helps them realise that uh, their behaviour or wrong belief is a really serious thing and they need to turn from it. 1 Corinthians 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That was a um, phrase for excommunication that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The purpose, the ultimate purpose there of the discipline is actually their salvation. It is to bring them back to the Lord. That is the ultimate goal of the discipline. Secondly, uh, notice that by the way, okay, uh, it is not words alone that are used to bring salvation. It is actually actions as well. Um, uh, the, the point there is that this discipline is an action 
which is being used to ensure that the person continues on in the faith and it says that their souls may be saved. The actions there are part of the process of a person coming to or staying in salvation. Um, um, we believe that, don't we? We believe that example is important. We often talk about the importance of our own lives in having an effect on others. And it's the same with the church. A church is not just responsible to preach the word. A church is responsible to have actions that are supporting the gospel as well. And it is these actions that were that his spirit may be saved. Um, the positive purpose there also is for others within the church um, discipline is an, is an important example to others within the church and also to those outside of the church. 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase more to ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. That is the result of a failure of discipline. Paul says elsewhere, a bad company corrupts good habits. And so the purpose of discipline is good and loving it is part of God's means to keep us in the faith and to be a testimony to the world. Discipline is not an optional extra in the life of the church. Um, in 2 Corinthians 2, I think it's about verse 8, Paul, Paul commends the, um, the, the Corinthians because they've kept his commands in this regard. It's not just an optional extra, but it's part of the life of the church. It is a critical aspect to the life of the church. It is great if a church is preaching the word and it is great if a church is evangelising but a biblical church is also known by its discipline and it fails in a crucial mark of the church if it will not discipline. Where a church does not discipline but has good teaching, it is just like a parent who teaches their child every day, but they never actually do anything about it if their child does the wrong thing. And everybody knows that it's great to teach your children, but if you never actually do anything about it, if your child does the wrong thing, it's not enough, is it? You need to discipline too. Now, as I say, the situation... Um, uh, today is that church discipline is enormously lacking within mainstream churches. Um, I'm going to just give you a, a brief overview of a few of the churches. As I said earlier, there has been improvement in the Presbyterian Church of Australia. That is true. And the reason why there has been improvement in the church, uh, in the church is exactly because Okay, they now have less liberals within the church. Um, the fact that there has been improvement within the church demonstrates um, that when you get unbelievers out of the membership of the church, it actually makes a difference. Um, however, the important thing is that the liberals uh, were never kicked out. They themselves simply chose to form another church. And even since the Uniting Church has formed, the church has taken very little initiative in getting rid of the unbelievers that are still within the church. And in fact, there are still a large number of unbelievers within the church. When I say within the church, I'm talking about the membership of the church. Of course, we want unbelievers at church. But I'm talking about the membership of the church, people who are acknowledged to be Christians. This was revealed back in 1993 with the case of Peter Cameron, 
Uh, Peter Cameron was a minister in the Presbyterian Church and a principal of St Andrews at the University of Sydney. Uh, Cameron claimed that to attribute authority to the Bible was fantasy. Uh, The Bible certainly contains errors, he said. He acknowledged that as a result he didn't really know very much about God. He said that he doubted very much that Jesus Christ had risen bodily from the dead. He made remarks which were uh, favourable to homosexuality. He um, uh, supported women's ordination and things like this. That's still uh, not uncommon within the Presbyterian Church. Um, uh, In a radio interview, Peter Cameron was asked who had put him into the ministry. To this he responded, God, if there is a God, I think it was either him or her. A woman heard this and she took her to her local minister. The local minister was aware of Peter Cameron's views but had done nothing about it. Eventually the session agreed to take Peter Cameron to the presbytery. In particular, he was charged over a sermon that he had preached where he had claimed that on certain matters of scripture, the simple fact is, quote, that Paul got it wrong. The evangelicals within the church won the day and he was convicted in the New South Wales Assembly. However, the startling thing was the numbers within the presbytery uh, because while there were some 143 that voted to convict him of heresy, there were also some 97 that voted against convicting him of heresy. On a second charge also, while some 123 voted to convict him, some 65 voted not to convict him. If you translate that roughly into um, PRC terms, uh, roughly about four or five of the 13 congregations in the PRC sided with Peter Cameron. I appreciate that that was 17 years ago. I I do appreciate that. Um, But these were not difficult issues. We're not talking about 17 years ago on an obscure matter. Uh, These were not difficult issues. And this concerned not simply a member of a church but a principal of a college. I mean, if that is the kind of attitude toward a principal of a college, what is the attitude toward members? And... Anecdotally, I would have to say that I could give you numerous examples of cases where I I know that discipline has not been happening within the Presbyterian Church within recent years. And this within apparently Calvinistic congregations often. Um, I could tell you of there's a a congregation in Milton which has started up. We we visit it when we go to Mary Beach. Um, But it's a reformed Presbyterian congregation, as in reformed... You know what I mean. Um, uh, But it has the interim moderator from a man from outside of its presbytery because um, they said there are just too many Freemasons within our own presbytery. I could tell you also of a relative of mine that recently started attending New South Wales presbyteries and he was shocked by the number of unbelievers that still exist even at a presbytery level. I could tell you of two separate incidents, both within apparently Calvinistic congregations where church members were living with someone else outside of wedlock. And again, these are church members um, and the leadership believed that it was enough. It was enough just to tell them that they didn't agree with them. 
I could tell you of a marriage of a believer with an unbeliever, again, in, in an apparently Calvinistic congregation. I could mention ministers moving into parishes where they, where they recognise that they're having to work along unconverted elders. Um, and then, of course, they have a terrible time, a really hard time, because most of their membership is unconverted. And I could go on. Um, as I say, um, often these kinds of things are occurring within even the more reformed congregations. Um, I, I knew of another person that went along to, uh, you might, may have heard of um, a fellow by the name of Mark, Mark Diva. Mark Diva is a speaker that, uh, from America that came out to Australia and he, he, he highlights the importance of certain things like church discipline and church membership and so on. And uh, a friend of mine was hearing a, a number of uh, students within the Presbyterian College going, going up to Mark Deaver after and saying, hey, this is great, but we just don't understand how you could possibly do this. We've never seen anything like this. Um, they just had no idea how, how this could possibly work um, because it's just not what they've been experiencing within their own churches. Um, these are churches often, as I say, the more Calvinistic ones that would declare the infallibility, infallibility of Scripture. They would say that Scripture is their rule of life and yet um, they're ignoring plain passages of scripture on church discipline. Let me talk of the Anglican church secondly. Um, the Anglican church at a worldwide level and at, a, at an Australian level is largely apostate. Uh, evangelical leaders within the Anglican church will readily acknowledge that. A recent development of July of last year was the head of the Australian Anglican church, Peter uh, Aspinall, welcoming a Church of England decision to bless people who have children uh, before marriage. Uh, now, of course, the diocese within Sydney is different to other dioceses in Australia. Um, but even within the Diocese of Sydney, um, you do have high Anglican churches. Uh, again, I know of ministers going into these congregations. I'm not very far away from here and having all sorts of troubles because the people they are working with are not even Christians. And even within the Diocese of Sydney, uh, discipline is lacking. Um, I mean, the Anglican Church does not even have membership. I want to just quote from a local Anglican website. There is no formal basis for membership in the Anglican Church. A person is deemed to be a communicant member of an Anglican Church simply by attendance at the church and participation at the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper of which isn't fenced. So, I mean, they just choose to attend the Lord's Supper, they choose to come to church, and they're judged as being a member. There is no formal membership within the Anglican Church. So how do you discipline people if they've never actually agreed that they want to be a member of your church? How can you do that? Um, uh, in, in fact, it's interesting, there are cases in the US where churches have... Have, have come to this realisation that, oh, there's, there's a need to exercise church discipline and they didn't have a membership structure in place and they thought, oh, OK, well, let's discipline this person who's not a member. And, I mean, they've had legal cases against them because how do you do it? How do you discipline a person who's not actually formally a member of your church? I'm not saying that you do membership for legal reasons. Well, I think it's biblical, but it highlights the point that it's very, very, very difficult to do discipline without church membership. Thirdly, um, the Baptist Union. Uh, the Baptist churches, of course, are independent, so there is a lot of difference between them. 
Um, however, there is a union between them. Not, not, not all Baptist churches are within the union, of course. Um, we, we've interacted with various uh, Baptist churches. Um, the one that Southern District Andrew, uh, Baptist Reform, Reform Baptist and so on is not within the union. There are various Baptist churches that aren't within the union, but I'm talking about ones within the union. Um, I can't say that I, I know a huge amount about the Baptist Union, so I'll be fairly um, cautious in what I have to say, uh, but to give you some idea of where they are at with discipline. Between 1999 to 2010, 2002, Tim Costello was the president of the Baptist Union of Australia. Tim Costello, of course, is brother to um, our former treasurer, Peter Costello, and I believe that it was while he was the head of the Baptist Union at that time that he openly came out and denied the historical truthfulness of the Bible. Uh, he denied that we are saved specifically through Christ's death for us on the cross. He said that we will all be saved in the end anyway. Uh, that doesn't give me a great deal of confidence in the capacity of churches within the Baptist Union to discipline if a person like that was elected to be their president. Um, I, I'm not aware, by the way, that he was ever stood down from that position, although if anybody does know uh, information on that, I'm quite prepared to be corrected. Um, as I say, uh, not all Baptist churches are part of the Baptist Union, but the majority are. The Reformed Church has also been on the, the decline. I've talked about this in the past. Um, you would be aware that we've had some interactions with the Reformed Church in the past. Uh, we were surprised to hear of the recent developments within the church. The MacArthur Reformed Church, Terry Flanagan, resigned after the last Christian Reformed Churches of Australia National Synod. Uh, Terry Flanagan resigned uh, because he had protested against some within the denomination inviting Tony Campolo to speak. Tony Campolo has expressed views that a Muslim can be saved by Christ without being a Christian uh, because of the good things that they do to other people. He, also expressed he has also expressed compromising views on homosexuality. Um, at that synod also they endorsed um, fraternal relationships with a Reformed Church in South Africa which supports apartheid. Um, and so Terry Flanagan, the Minister of the Reformed Church at MacArthur, resigned um, because the National Synod, this is the National Synod of the Reformed Churches, criticised, uh, sorry, endorsed a letter which criticised Terry Flanagan and others for protesting against Campolo speaking. Um, and so you get something of a sense of the state of discipline within the church there nationally. Um, MacArthur then did try to um, take this matter, matter up. They took it to their own New South Wales presbytery, their own New South Wales, well, it's called a classis, but their own New South Wales presbytery. Then um, they did recognise that the synod had done the wrong thing and they supported the MacArthur, uh, they supported trying to call for an emergency synod to deal with these issues, but you needed three classes out of all of the classes in Australia to actually agree to that before it would actually happen. Um, they got the support of the New South Wales classes. They 
got the support by a thin majority of one of the classes in Victoria and they wouldn't get the support from any of the other classes in Australia. Now this is over issues like this is over issues like a man saying, well, inviting a preacher, inviting a preacher who is known to have said things like a Muslim can be saved um, by Christ without himself being Christian. And you have um, two classes out of the whole of Australia agreeing that it's worthwhile to actually call a emergency centre to deal with these matters and get this sorted out. Um, that's the Christian Reformed Church situation. Uh, yeah, so as I say, it doesn't give me a great deal of confidence about the state of discipline within the Christian Reformed Church. That is uh, all I have to say on this matter. Well, I, I'll talk about some more related matters um, next time, um, but I didn't want a talk to go on for so long that I left you falling asleep. So, yep. Um,